Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 31 of Reen Our Voice. My name is Robert Swatala. I'm one of the co-hosts of Reen Our Voice. And with me, my friend, my colleague, my partner for the last 30 episodes and still continuing, Jeff Mazzone. Jeff, how are you today? Good. You know, you've added colleague to the litany of our relationship. I, uh, I, I like that. No. I, did you see that? See that? Yeah. Well, not yep. quite for me. You know, I'm still, <laughs> you're still, I, I guess I can't even call you a co-student anymore. So congratulations on being done and, and happy new year to you. I haven't really yep. got that opportunity to say happy new year. And, and Christmas, Merry Christmas. Yeah, that went by quickly. You know, it's been a while. we did it. We did do a podcast. We did do a, an episode uh, 30. So we did get a chance to talk, but we really didn't get a chance to 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 talk to say our usual hi. banter yes. before you know yes. to waste the yeah. time of yeah. our guests and listeners <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know all the good stuff right so no happy new year before we get started any uh, any resolutions any anything for this twenty twenty two that you have your heart you set know, on you asked me this question last time and did my I, question I, remains the yes, same I did I remember that to Do be you remember a, my answer to be a better husband. Yeah, no, specifically less of a jerk to <laughs> my wife. That's exactly. Well, yes, I was making it making it a lot nicer for you. So, no, 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 is that still you didn't you didn't make progress on that? You know, that's a consistent. That's a lifelong. You know, okay. some some people are sprinters. I'm a real marathon guy. You know, so my poor wife. Gosh. Yes. Hey, well, did I tell you that we're expecting? Oh no, no, no! This is this is this is like exclusive. Like here we go. Where's, well, where's the um, hot off the press bumper that we should have? You were not prepared for that. No, I was not. No. Well, congratulations! No. Yeah, That's yeah. Really, you know what? Graduating from school, moving. Let's make a big. You. You're growing, just you're yeah. just growing up right before our eyes, aren't you? I'm 37. <laughs> I don't know why you think I'm so. <laughs> Oh, I just well, I got a late start on life, you know, and <laughs> my shtick around here is to be the immature one, it seems. So that yes, well, we got to stay with that. But congratulations for both of you. That's awesome. Yep, good, Thanks. good for you. So now you go out of playing man-to-man defense to zone. Now that you have three kids, so you're two two against three. So you got to be yeah, a it, more strategic. You know, if way. we have another girl, it's going to be three women and and me, which yeah, is okay. Yeah, yeah. So well, congratulations. That's a great way to start the new year. Thanks, man. Hey, so our listeners also don't know that we have actually never met in person. So May is May, coming. Yes. yes, I'm excited. Graduation at yeah. Liberty, so that'll be fun. Yeah, I've been working out so that I show my best for for May. You know, I want to yeah. make sure. Wow. I, yeah, okay. I, I put my best foot forward for you. You know, the robe is not exactly form fitting. You know, what do they call that? Yes. Yeah. Athletic fit. They're not athletic yeah. fit. There's no slim fit robe for their gown or whatever. It's oh, oh my it's goodness. It's not like you're going to be walking like, wow, he looks good. Yeah. You know, like he's been working out. Yeah, man. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, enough. I mean, our listeners may be laughing, but that's not why they're tuned in. Uh, <laughs> this podcast. So what yeah, a great way to start the new year. Um, that's you great. know, happy new year, happy new year to our listeners. Um, we're glad that you kind of stick with us. We, we enjoy this and we hope that we can continue to bring you relative content through this year. So with that said, Jeff, could you introduce, we got a great guest for today and I'm excited. So you could, could you go ahead and introduce? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's like a whole, every semester, there's like a whole new slew of, of great professors that have come on to Liberty. And it seems like a lot of them are actually Liberty grads, either PhD grads uh, or sometimes MA, but usually PhD. And so every semester I kind of check the, uh, the faculty page to see any new faces and new names. And I came across. That's called Dr. stalking, by the way. Is that what that is? Okay. Okay. Just so you know oh. that. 
you know, I'm looking for new guests and whatever. And we came across um, Dr. Chris Ostrander uh, and he and his wife actually both went to Liberty for their PhD and are both teaching at Liberty and took a quick look at his bio. And I was like, yes, yes, let, let's get him. So we're really happy to have um, Dr. Chris Ostrander here with us. He currently serves as a core faculty member for the Department of Counselor Education and Family Studies at Liberty University. Clinically, he and his wife, Dr. Melissa Ostrander, own and counsel within their private practice solely through telehealth, serving clients in both North Carolina and Florida. Dr. Christopher Ostrander specializes in trauma and couples counseling working with mostly military personnel and their families. He is also active in advocacy efforts in the counseling field and serves on the Spiritual and Religious Values Committee within ACA's acerbic division. Currently, his research interests include PTSD, perceived pornography addiction, and the integration of spirituality and counseling. So, Dr. Ostrander, good morning. Thanks so much for being here today. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. So, I mentioned, you know, just looking at your page, and when I saw that perceived pornography addiction line in there, I was like, "We let's go for it. Let's do it. We had uh, Dr. John Thomas on a few months ago to kind of introduce this topic. And we were really hoping to just kind of get into the more specific nitty gritty about this niche of that general kind of field and particularly what it means uh, for it to be perceived. So, Doc, can you just walk us through that? What, what do we mean by perceived pornography addiction? Can you break that down for us, please? Yeah. So when the research um, really started looking at pornography use, fast forward uh, into the advent of the internet, obviously, uh, it really exploded with the advent of the internet. And um, some of the studies started to show that individuals were feeling addicted to pornography. And so this led to researchers to really focus on these self perceptions, uh, hence perceived addictions, rather than whether pornography is in and of itself addictive or not. And so it's more really focusing in on individuals' perceptions and where do those perceptions come from and how does this transpire as they interact with pornography and the downstream effect of some of those factors interacting. So, Doc, yeah, thanks for being on with us today. We, we really appreciate it. So kind of building off that, the perceived pornography is, is if I understand what you're saying, it's it's more into the individual. And, and I guess if that's the case, how does that tie into whether something or, or we classify this as addictive, compulsive or, or nothing at all? And, and kind of how does that fit into maybe some of the other addictions related to DSM-5? And I know pornography or sex addiction isn't part of DSM-5, but kind of how does this fit into the, 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 the envelope at which we operate as counselors? It's a good question. Um, and it's, it's a really tangled one um, from my perception. Um, I'll do my best uh, to delineate when I'm speaking from a research standpoint, but then also from my clinical experience of over the last 10 years, um, working in and through this population. And so to your question, um, where is it addictive? Where is the behavior compulsive? Um, I, I think obviously that comes down to the individual um, and kind of their patterns, patterns of behavior, patterns of consumption. Um, as it pertains to the perceived addiction, I'll, I'll mention a couple of things. 
individuals, there's, there's a pattern of people in the research, but I'll also say clinically speaking, there's a pattern of individuals that perceive that they're addicted based on even uh, use once a week, use once a month. It's this idea that um, if, I, if I can't stop, therefore I'm addicted. And so as a researcher, but also as a clinician, I think uh, there's a lot of, of really interesting and important discussions to have there. Uh, as a clinician, one of the things um, when I interact with individuals that uh, label themselves, say, uh, self-label themselves as addictive, uh, I really want to pour into that and, and kind of pull that apart about what is it about viewing pornography and masturbating once a week that, that signifies that they're addicted. And I think culturally, I'll say in the church, it's, and this is my personal opinion, I think it's, it's probably ran away too far too fast that the idea is most individuals think, well, if I can't stop and I do it fairly regularly, therefore I'm addicted. And this actually ties into another piece of the research um, that I looked into called externalizing. Um, and uh, to break that down, it's just the idea of like blaming something outside of myself for this behavior. And so I think there's this dangerous combination or has been this dangerous combination of it's addictive, it's addictive, it's addictive in the church. And therefore, if I use it periodically and I can't stop, um, well, now I'm self-labeling and it becomes this runaway train. And I think for a lot of individuals that I've seen and worked with, but also in the research, it, uh, it gives them almost this this free pass then to stay in this loop um, where I disagree with it, I do it, I experience shame, sexual shame, but I'm addicted, right? So I'm externalizing this blame. It's not really my fault or a portion of it's not my fault, which then I have to deal with at least the carryover effect and some of that failure. And then what's a perfect coping skill a lot of times is, well, I go right back into that loop. So just to clarify on this, it sounds like you are also factoring in that label of addict that potentially could produce uh, essentially shame, which shame, as we know, is is kind of the, the root and the jet fuel of that addiction cycle. Is, is that what we're trying to decipher here? Because I, I don't think you're saying, though, there isn't a, a addictive behaviors or someone couldn't be addictive. Uh, addicted to pornography, but there is a potential danger zone at self-labeling yourself addictive because it's only going to increase the amount of shame that one has experienced. Is that is that kind of what we're dealing with on this? Yeah. So let me back up because uh, when you get into research, uh, obviously it's very very nuanced, and I think it's a reflection of life. Life life is very very nuanced. And so if you just look at pornography research as a whole, no religiosity included, you've got research that shows, hey, pornography is actually really good for some individuals. It's helpful. It, it's beneficial. It, you know, it's a great coping skill. It's educational um, in nature. And so there's research that shows that. And then there's research also that shows for people that and I think this is a, a huge shift. People that believe pornography, viewing pornography is wrong. And generally you land in more of religious camps. Uh, the term is religiosity, somebody that believes um, in God and that it's morally wrong. Then you start seeing in the research this idea of, I, I disagree with 
the idea of viewing pornography, I view pornography, and then there's the experience of the sexual shame on the back end. So yes, and let me go step back just a second. I would say that second path or thread of research also diverges. And I think that there's research out there that definitely shows for some people, it's very compulsive for some people, um, addictive in nature. And then there's also another path. And this is more of the research path that, that I'm discussing today, which is there's some individuals that because of the, uh, for varying factors, let's just say the culture that what they've learned about pornography use, what they believe, um, there's this idea that, that they're self-prescribing themselves as addictive, despite, I think, as a clinician, but also as a researcher, once a week use in their in their 20s may not exactly meet uh, some of the criteria if there were criteria for an actual addiction. And I think, too, this is, it's a hard subject to, we want to, I think, compare it to substance use. And I think it's it's very different in a lot of ways. Substance use is something that we're ingesting. It's something foreign to the human body. When we talk about sex, pornography use, masturbation, our bodies were designed to have sex. Our bodies were designed to have orgasms. And so um, I think clinically outside of the world, and you get into the APA and, and the DSM-5 and potentially a DSM-6, I think it's a hard line to delineate between how much is too much when there is research out there that says, hey, this, this may be a good thing. And so, um, and maybe I've muddled the water a little bit, so I apologize if I have. Nope, not at all, Dr. Oshender. This is this is spot on, this is great. You know, just, I'm glad you brought up folks in the church, believers, followers, and what this looks like for them and kind of that that quick move to just call it addictive. And that kind of brings up the discussion of like, what does this look like for Christians in particular. Um, and there's a lot of things we could talk about here, you know, levels of culpability, you know, and you had already mentioned that, like how free are you, you know, using the addictive label is that an externalizing attempt to kind of remove culpability? Uh, but is there also a point where culpability is reduced because of other things that are going on and pornography use and masturbation is not a root cause, but a, a symptom of something else? So in particular, like clinically, and on the research side, what are we seeing? What do we know? What are we observing about pornography use, especially among Christians? Does it seem like it has less to do with sex and lust and, and poor, you know, teenage boys, just too randy, you know, for lack of a better phrase? Or are there other things going on? You know, is this about self-regulation, stress relief, anxiety, depression? Like, what's the relationship you're seeing? So an interesting thing, back in 2004, Cooper noted um, the AAA engine effect um, with pornography, having the accessibility with the internet, the affordability, um, and the anonymity. And so you see this explosion culturally um, that was there, but there was, you know, to access pornography, people had to go to video stores or gas stations and actually get physical copies of things. Um, but with computers and internet, obviously that all exploded. So I think that's a, a really important piece from a church standpoint. I, or excuse me, from a theological standpoint, I personally think that this is such a 
such an answer to the garden. And if you guys let me explain a little bit, I'll, I'll go in there and, and tie in a little bit of research as well. So if you think about it, Adam and Eve chose to be like God, delineating between good and evil. Um, they wanted to be gods themselves. Um, and this is not my words as many theologians, apologists that have proposed this idea that this was a huge part of it. And so when, in, when humanity lost our place in this world, um, we lost purpose, we lost value, we lost worth. We lost orientation to who God is, who we are, how do we interact with creation? I mean, there, there was just so much that was lost in that, that, that moment. And I think pornography answers so much of that in a really sneaky way. Clinically, one of the things I consistently ask clients and process, especially with religious clients is, what's the message behind pornography? Right. I mean, once you get past the, the nakedness and the orgasms, there's a message and I'm huge about relationships, do a lot of couples counseling. And so we're, we're constantly talking about what, what are the messages they're being sent back and forth. And um, I think peeling back that message of what's being sent from the screen to the individual who's viewing. And I, I just love to hear your guys' answers. What do you guys think the maybe some of the messages are from the screen to the individual. Well, I think the thing that stands out for me, Dr. Ostrander, is the objectification, the, the worth, the value of the other individual. I, I think that that to me is a big message that that's sent. You know, this is an interesting topic because and a little self-disclosure is a lot of fun. So I was, I was first exposed to pornography at the age of 10 as a, coping mechanism for my father abandoning our family. And that use kind of continued up until I entered the seminary at 17. Um, and I was in seminary for eight years to, you know, left before ordination and uh, later met my wife. And when it, we got married, you know, and we saved sex for marriage and come time for honeymoon, I had in my idea when it came to sex, all the things I learned from pornography. And I had a real rude awakening when I realized that my wife was actually a human being and not what I experienced from all the pornography consumption all those years before. And it became, I mean, we joke about it now, but it, it was very difficult because I had very different expectations. I just thought that my wife was suddenly going to become this vixen and just fulfill all of what I thought sex was, despite all my theological training about the garden, theology of the body and all the other stuff like that was my sexual experience and it was largely grossly distorted and it, it hurt, you know, the beginning days of my marriage. Yeah. I, I think you guys are spot on. There's a lot there to peel apart. There's absolutely this idea. We know behaviorally, if I expose myself to something long enough, it's going to affect how I view other things. And Jeff, you're hitting on that, this idea that, if I view women or men or anybody in, in sexual acts a certain way, I'm going to then start uh, objectifying or expecting that this relationship that I've established and has spent so much time for, therefore, if I engage in sex with a human being, of course, that it my expectation, sh it should be like this because this has been my natural relationship that I've developed. And I think um, 
Robert, you hit the nail on the head as well as underneath it all. There's this idea of, I'll say acceptance and worth, right? So take it out of pornography use for a second. The idea that somebody would enter into the sacred act of, of sex and extremely physically, emotionally vulnerable, that is a very affirming piece um, of behavior. And so I think a huge piece anecdotally from a clinical standpoint, I think underneath the surface, there's this acceptance piece. There's this worth. You are valuable. You are worthy enough to engage with me in this sex act. And I think on top of obviously the dopamine, um, the cocktail of chemicals that fires off in the brain when we view pornography and have an orgasm, I think it is this perfect coping skill for many of us um, and, and what we're feeling with that day, that time, that, that moment. And of course, with the anonymity and the affordability and the accessibility, well, we're smart creatures. If something works, we repeat it again and again and again and again. And so you, you set up this loop. And I think for Christians, the, the super dangerous thing is this idea of gaining worth and validation in this. And I, I usually describe it as, as kind of breadcrumbs. Um, this is like a cheap latte or a Snickers bar, pornography use, any coping skill, but we're talking about pornography use today. But any good coping skill is kind of like a cheap Snickers bar or, or, or Starbucks latte. It props you up and keeps you going for a little bit, but then you crash. And we know with the research, with pornography use, sexual shame is the crash. And then you're left to deal with that. Whereas one of the things clinically we're pushing into um, is this idea of having sustainable meals with God or from God rather. And these are these moments where God affirms us and kind of steps through time and space and, and, and organizes his own affirmation process, whatever that looks like. And I can go into that a little bit more if we're kind of digressing, but that idea that it affirms us in such a way, in such a spiritual way, in such a supernatural way that it nourishes our soul to the point where it propels us that that affirmation, that worth that you guys talked about graduation coming up, you know, that I promise when you guys graduate, that will probably carry you guys for weeks and months. I mean, you guys will be kind of on a high to some degree. Um, and that's that natural rite of passage or affirmation that I think individuals really need from a Christian standpoint. Um, and they're supplementing in the uh, pornography world. And so I want to slide back just for a second because this question was so big and, and there was a lot to discuss. One of the things I did want to point out from a research standpoint is a couple of things that we know um, or, or that the research has shown so far is there's a lot of reasons individuals come to pornography and why they use it. And so far um, to date, some of the top reasons are people view pornography for arousal and enhancement. And so that makes sense um, just from a purely sexual or biological um, standpoint. Uh, another one is curiosity and information seeking. A, a lot of people actually report viewing pornography to become better lovers, to learn how to engage in different sex acts, um, to be more competent and confident. Um, another one is uh, what's known as intimacy or coupling motives. This is the idea that, um, well, my wife wants to view pornography because she thinks it'll uh, enrich our sex life. And so 
um, the individual engages for more of a motivation to please their partner. Uh, we've been talking about this fourth one quite a bit is coping. So I don't feel well or I feel blah or I just, I want to feel better. And pornography is a great way to feel better. Um, and then lastly, believe it or not, a huge, um, a, 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 another large number, it's in the top five, is boredom. Uh, so individuals are just bored and, and they're driven to, to view and, and partake in pornography. So, Dr. Arstrander, with all that said, um, in terms of that research, how how does sin and the way the church views sin and maybe some of the sinfulness or sin shaming, I'll call it, plays into that? Are you seeing that having a fact that um, I'm a sinner or you're a sinner or if you do this, you will be a, a sinner, however that plays out? Does the research show that playing a a impact in terms of how Christians are viewing pornography, or is that just adding shame onto shame that already exists? Yeah, I think uh, from a research standpoint, the individuals um, that uh, the term is moral incongruence or moral disapproval, they disapprove of uh, viewing pornography. Um, there's a huge correlation to then when they view pornography, the shame um, radically increases. And so for people that, and I'm going to use the, the, the term religious, anybody that believes in God and the, the term in the research is religiosity, they don't necessarily have to be Christians, evangelicals. They also report this shame factor. And so um, when you boil it down, um, to Christians, obviously they're in that group and, and they're going to experience a, a, a great deal of shame as well. Yeah, I, I love that question. And that, that's a whole nother episode, just like, and that kind of gets into moral theology a bit too. But, you know, in the Catholic tradition, we have this approach, which I think is both clinical and spiritual direction, that um, a person is in this pornography masturbation kind of cycle. And, um, his response to that or her response to that afterward is to run to confession uh, because of the fear of sinning. But the problem is, <laughs> is that the person has a distorted idea about their sexuality. And so the, the fear of sinning kind of overtakes, kind of overpowers the deep desire that is good for this healthy sexuality, which is distorted. And they're never able to get to the healthy sexuality because they're so consumed by I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a shameful thing. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And so reason never gets to guide the natural desire for sexuality because fear is kind of blocking and this kind of gets psychodynamic fear kind of is like blocking the person's ability to even be comfortable with their sexual desires. Um, and so the conversation about sin is really complicated. <laughs> so I wonder, Doc, if you're able to speak at all about you know, addiction, compulsive, obsessive behavior, what is the relationship there with freedom? You know, the, the uh, freedom to even be moral, because you can't be morally evaluated if you're not free. So, I mean, what does that look like for you clinically as you have people before you, married couples, single people sitting before you in pain over this and, and this fear of sin, but also this very obvious sense that they're not free? 
Yeah, so I'll try and hit. I, I, I do want to kind of hit on the, the sin part of it because I think the sin and the sexual shame is really important from a clinical standpoint. Um, but also you're hitting on something that um, the research does hit on specifically when it talks to um, the idea of almost like obsessive compulsive um, disorders. Um, specifically, uh, there's been multiple studies that note in having, excuse me, clarify my thoughts, uh, obsessive compulsive disorders um, in Jewish, Muslim, Catholic um, religions um, are higher. Um, and so you've got these higher rates of OCD-like behavior in these re religions. And I would say, um, I think as an evangelical, it's, it's affirming, and I think it, it's so cool how God works because he knows how we're going to be broken and the ways that we needed him. And I think what's so unique about this is if I'm um, more of a legalistic or lean heavy on the Old Testament and law, 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 then of course, with that, it's going to come a tremendous amount of shame. Whereas the idea of grace Obviously, we need the New Testament. We need God's grace. We need that. Absolutely. Um, I don't remember which theologian that said this, but I aspire to this uh, as well as the most important word in the New Testament or throughout the Bible is and, truth and grace. And it's this tension. You see this tension between uh, when we see Jesus uh, between truth and grace. There's times where he is absolutely uh, staunchly firm in truth, but then we also see him immensely gracious. And I think as human beings, we want this formula, we want this pattern, but it's a relationship. And it's this finding that tension, that and place where we're constantly figuring out, well, where is that tension? I think what we're seeing in the research, and this is more of my opinion, but I think what we're seeing in the research is some of those religions that are very law-driven, if I can use that word, is you're seeing higher levels of people that are reporting OCD-like symptoms. But it makes sense because what they're engaging in and what they're behaviorally digesting on a regular basis is this idea of rules and principles and laws and laws and laws. And so for individuals that could um, hyper-focus and obsess, you're now giving them almost a blueprint and a belief system that endorses that obsession. And so then you see a heightened report in some of this research of these OCD-like behaviors. Dr. Ostrander, I love how you, you pick that apart. I love how you take the research and pick it apart and just, just, just present it in a very practical way. I think that's, that's, a, that's a great, great asset, great tool that you're able to do. And I want to go back to that research really quick because you mentioned a comment that before we got started, I think you said that the research needs to catch up to the practical or the clinical side of things. And, and I think the, the one thing that I, that I see and, and, and have experienced is when we talk about pornography, most of the time the mind immediately goes to males, uh, specifically teenage, adolescents, young males as being the demographics. But I think we're seeing that change. I think we're seeing uh, a change where sex is no longer becoming necessarily a factor. Can you just share uh, kind of how you're seeing maybe some of the that discrepancy, maybe it's sex, maybe it's demographics, maybe it's multicultural, where um, 
maybe the research and the actual practical side of things aren't quite up to speed with each other yet. Yeah. So one of the studies that individuals um, cite myself as well is a 2016 study that noted out of emerging adults, 18 to 39, 16% of women view pornography at least once a week. And so as it pertains, uh, there was a few questions in there. I wanted to hit on that. As it pertains to females, absolutely pornography use is affecting females. And it's going to only increase, I think, as you look at our culture and you look at uh, the way things are changing with our culture. Obviously, what we see uh, isn't always exactly what's in the research, but I think with the progression of, of a lot of things, I think that number will change. Um, I'd be surprised if it didn't. I think it, it will potentially get closer. I, I don't know if it'll ever match what males are, um, but I think it'll get closer. And so um, I wanted to hit on that. If I can back up, Robert, to hit on um, what Jeff was talking about with the sin aspect, I think this is key from a clinical standpoint. The shame that's in the research, we know it saddles individuals that view pornography and use it however they use it. Um, the research is pretty strong there. They, they morally disagree with pornography and they engage in pornography and they experience shame. I think the stories and the identities that individuals and we as a culture, whether that's big C culture in America or small C culture as evangelicals, tell on specific issues like pornography is immensely important because clinically, like I mentioned earlier, individuals come in, they view pornography once every other week or once a week and I'm addicted. And that shame factor is there. And so one of the things I, I aim to do right out of the gate is I want to take this label off of them, but I, I need them to take it off of themselves. And so one of the things being in the research, it's so helpful is being able to share some of this research and point out, you know, is it possible that maybe you just think you're addicted, but really you're not? And it, when we have these conversations, um, it's amazing to see some of these individuals begin to just start to try on this new thought of, hey, maybe I'm not addicted. Because everything in the culture, and especially uh, I would say a large part of evangelical culture is saying, hey, if you can't stop, then you're addicted. Well, this becomes almost like a life sentence. And I think uh, almost a piece of their identity, I can't say if there's any connection there in the research, but I think anecdotally from a clinical standpoint, there's almost an identity piece there. And for me as a Christian um, and as a researcher, I am really careful and really kind of bristle at things that begin to self-identify if it is not connected to the scripture. Um, I'll go on a, I know a lot of clinicians disagree with me on this because they use it and it's a useful tool, but I'll, I'll hit on the Enneagram just because it's a hot topic and I, I hear a lot, but it could be attachment. It could be fill in the blank. It could be, you know, what we're talking about with, um, pornography addiction. If individuals are taking what a tool or a uh, culture says and beginning to apply it themselves and self-define themselves out of that, as opposed to, no, I'm a rightful heir to the throne of God. I think that is, is really interesting, one, from a clinical perspective, 
because why would you want to self-identify with maybe the worst part of your day, your week, or your month? Why would that? Why would you want that to be a part of your identity? That's a really, I'll say, strange thing. Um, and maybe culture helped you attach that, but that's we don't do that in other areas, right? Um, but in substance use and and the addictions world, we do, and I, I kind of want to push back on that. But similarly with the Enneagram, I think it's, I think individuals have a strong propensity to grab onto things to help make sense of their world, which makes sense. And we need to be careful as clinicians, as researchers, as Christians, that it is word-centered, Christ-centered, or else that slight twist, well, I'm a two, therefore I can be sarcastic and mean, or I'm an addict and I'm having a rough day. Well, I I am an addict and it almost perpetuates the behavior. And so going back to what I really am focused on when I work with this population clinically is getting them to challenge some of that, taking that label off. And then I think to Jeff's point for individuals, like I'm discussing that, you know, maybe it's once a week, maybe it's twice a week, really recognizing it, it in their in their faith system as hey is this a sin because if it is then we need to address it um, based on your goals and let's look at it for what it is it's a poor coping skill i have pretty good rapport with my clients and yeah i kind of beat them up here and there but also build them up as much as possible and i, I'm, I joke like stop using the pacifier right it's a rubber nipple like you don't need it. You are stronger than that. And I think people are, especially in this clinical population, they need to be built up. They need to be encouraged. They need somebody to come along and say, you got this, like, stop. It's a behavioral response. It's a coping skill. You can do this. And yeah, obviously per the, the, the client and per the situation, there may, may be a lot of factors that need to go into play, but I believe as human beings, we are immensely strong and capable of, of incredible things. And I want to be a person that raises that standard and says, no, based on what I'm assessing, basing what I'm seeing, this is just a poor coping skill. And you want to stop it, we're stopping it today. And in the last 10 years, I've seen a, a ton of success. My wife has a similar approach and yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. And and there's a whole a whole realm of this discussion we could go into and we just don't have a time today, but hopefully maybe in the future we can get that. And that, it, what I was thinking of was that comparison of maybe how the um, recovery community, the disease model that they that they prescribe to versus maybe some of the things we're talking about here. But I think one of the things that that always bothered me with from the recovery circle was that identity where even in introductions, hi, my name is Robert and I am a alcoholic or a sex addict or porn addict or whatever, whatever label or why you're there, you, you assign that right after your name. And, and I always had some kind of trepidation about it because I thought that, wow, they're, they're taking on that identity. And I heard something recently, I think, which was much more of a healthy perspective. It, it was something along the lines of the community will say once an addict, always an addict. And the counter to that is maybe once an addict, maybe once you've exposed these behaviors, 
always vulnerable. So instead of not once an addict, always an addict, once an addict, always vulnerable. Because I think that coping skill, that coping mechanism exists. I don't know if it ever goes away, but you're right. You are stronger this than this. You, you, there are other coping avenues that you can take that are healthy and, and, and will produce other results. And I think that's an important thing to, to, to identify is because once it becomes rooted in someone's identity, it's either easy for them to use that as a crutch or an excuse or a reason to just kind of feel hopeless. So I really appreciate you bringing that to the table because I think that's an important part of what we do as clinicians is that identity piece. So I don't know if you had any last minute thoughts on that or, or I just wanted to share anything kind of comparing those two worlds because I think there is a different perspective there. Yeah, uh, obviously, um the disease model has been immensely helpful for 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 decades whether you're talking about a na sa and i don't want to in any way knock anyone that uh supports that and lives in that and look as a clinician and i tell my students this um you have to find uh, a very similar approach as a clinician um and how you see dysfunction. And so you're matching some of your, some of the theories and testing some of the theories and seeing, you know, how does this line up biblically? How do I see this? Is it research or evidence-based and, and meshing these two? And I think just from my personal experience and specifically, because um, we really had in this discussion talked about somebody that, you know, is viewing and masturbating seven, eight times a day. You know, I think that's a whole different discussion. And I want to be crystal clear about that. Um, but yes, I think that disease model and that, um, one size fits all, or once an addict, always an addict is a really, uh, it's not a helpful discussion. It's not a helpful yoke or burden to put around somebody's neck at 20. I just, I, I don't see it as helpful as all. Um, and I think one of the things that, you know, I love working hard. I love hard work with my clients, but I also love, believe it or not, I love when God puts me um, in hard seasons. And that's not me as, you know, whatever uh, I, I'm not asking God to put me in hard seasons. I just know the growth that comes from it. And I also know my own wickedness and my own depravity and laziness. We are immensely lazy in my professional opinion and my personal opinion, especially in America. Um, and so with suffering, and this is, uh, I share this with many of my, my clients when they're going through hard seasons, I'm going to pull it up because sometimes my touch of dyslexia gets me, I don't want to misquote this, but this is my favorite verse in all the Bible. And I think it, it really dovetails into exactly what we're talking about. in a lot of this, uh, it's Romans five, three, not only that but we rejoice in sufferings knowing that sufferings produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame uh, i have a background in athletics i love the idea of suffering for something that's worthy and i think most people do as well um, but this, this idea of how we change, uh, both from a research standpoint, but also from a biblical standpoint, from sanctification is all summarized right there. 
when we get into difficult situations, whether we put ourselves there, our sin put us there, God put us there, what have you, we have a choice to either stand up, keep pushing forward, keep doing the right thing and endure that suffering, whatever the cost, whatever it may be. And we know if we do that, if we hold on to the now, if we build accountability, if we go the extra mile, if we do, to your point, Robert, uh, and I know somebody may have to go back, but lie detectors, tests, doing whatever you have to do to endure, you are now shaping and building character. And character gives hope. And hope does not put us to shame. And our sin is so shameful. And the enemy just wants us to soak in that shame and be drowned in a sea of shame. And so, yeah, I, I just wanted to point that out because that process of change and so much from a clinical standpoint is walking through that suffering and that endurance with clients. And I love it because whether it's working out with somebody physically at the gym or sitting down for a hard session and just getting in the trenches with them and just lockstep arm in arm, um, walking through some of the most painful experiences um, of their lives that I get the honor of, of a front row seat. And then seeing that that change, that metamorphosis of them gaining a foothold on some of these things and becoming uh, an individual of character and, and they change their lives right in front of you and that hope. And I think having that front row seat and being able to do that with individuals is um, just a tremendous honor. Preach doc. Yeah, amen. Amen. And I just, I, hope is like, that's our thing, right? This whole, not only as Christians, but as counselors, Christian counselors, counselors who are Christians, whatever you want to say, like hope is our thing, right? None of this works without hope. I, I think you just yeah. nailed that, Doc. Thank you for that. That was so beautiful. Really. Um, another translation that we use for that line is that hope does not disappoint. And I, I think of that line from our Lord, uh, the Sermon on the Mount about anxiety and worry. And he says, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. And he talked earlier about identity, like how much of this is our uh, distorted identity, a lack of identity in who we are as children of God, of a heavenly father. Um, there's a theologian who speaks about all these things in theology of the body, we call it. And he says, like, our culture is offering us a fast food diet, but we're made for a heavenly banquet when it comes to this. And, and Doc, I think you just... <laughs> You're a pro. I mean, you just, you nailed all of it. You touched on all of this that we wanted to get to today. And and thank you for just being here and being raw and honest and, and blending the clinical and the research and creating a space for Robert and I to share a little bit about this topic that hits both of us personally. I mean, we've already shared how that, that works. And man, I'm just, <laughs> it's good. It's good. It's always good when you can make Jeff speechless, Doc. So thank, <laughs> thanks, thanks for that. We, we appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Because there, there's so much there. I mean, we could we could sit and have this discussion for hours upon end, and, and and because it is prevalent, it is real, it is something that that we are facing. That is a major uh, thing that we face, not only as clinicians but as individuals. 
it's so prevalent. You mentioned the three A's. It, it is accessible and anonymous and, and, and pretty much free. And so, um, you know, it, it's going to be around. It's something that we're going to have to battle. And I, and I love how you were able to kind of pick that apart and combine some of the research with that practical side. So thank you again for, for taking the time and investing. I appreciate it. Um, just all the information. It was, it was fantastic the way you were able to go through all that with us. So thank you again. And let's have you on again. I'd love, there's more to this discussion that, uh, that I'd love to, to pick apart a little bit more. So again, thanks for, thanks for investing in, in us and our listeners would greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And, uh, Hey, uh, I'm excited for you guys. I know you guys are mentioned, Jeff, uh, congratulations on, uh, another one coming. Uh, we just had uh, our third in the last month. He's not even a month old. So uh, we're in a, a similar camp, but, also, the the fact that you guys are this close, Jeff, I know you're down and Robert, you're going to finish up, but uh, graduation is so cool. And so I'm excited for you guys because I know you guys are going to be colleagues in the field real soon. And uh, I'm excited uh, to see um, where you guys end up professionally. But how cool is this? You guys are doing this podcast. You guys have never been met. I think this is amazing. I think this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, the good Lord yeah. works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? Absolutely. It's good. It's good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. And, and Jeff, thank you. Congratulations again. Uh, I told you guys, you, you got to play man to man defense. It's way, way easier than zone. Zone never works. So no, no just kidding. Just congratulations. Um, and happy new year to both of you and to all our listeners. I, I do hope everyone has a, a blessed new year. Jeff, again, thank you. Dr. Ostrander, thank you again. I want to thank all our listeners. Um, feel free to check us out. We have some great episodes coming up. So feel free to, to, to check us out. Follow us, like us um, on all your, your podcast platforms. God bless and thanks for listening.